Psalm 99, starting at verse 1, it says, The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim, let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name, he is holy. The king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was amongst those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar, and they kept his testimonies in the ordinance he gave them. You answered them, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. Exalt the Lord our God, and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. When the Bible wants to emphasize a particular point, they were limited in what they were able to do. They could not use bold print. They didn't have italics. And capitalization didn't really work, especially in the New Testament, because the New Testament was written in all capital letters. Usually what they would do is is they would use repetition. When there was an important part, it would be repeated, such as, truly, truly, I say to you, Christ is making a point and he's wanting to get attention, or verily, verily, may I say to you. Again, when Jesus would say that, he was making a very important point. You would then know that the speaker was wanting to get your attention and you would give him your full attention. Well, The most well-known of this emphasis appears in two places in the Bible, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, and it's a concept that we saw mentioned three times here in Psalm 99. The Lord our God, the God who is, who is our God, he is holy. In Isaiah 6, chapter chapter 6, verse 3, and one cried out to another, speaking of those seraphim, holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, many theologians, and I I wouldn't I wouldn't argue against this, say that holy, holy, holy is a reference to the Trinity, and and that's very possible. But in actuality, I look at this term, holy, 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 and look at the context of Isaiah chapter 6, that God is holiest above all in creation. In Revelation chapter 4, God is holy above all for all time. I believe that holy, holy, holy is a reference to the degree of holy. This is holiness to the third degree. Now, the number three in scriptures denotes that which is solid, real, substantial, and most of all, complete and in its entirety. And so who is our God? Above and beyond all, he is holy. He is holy to the third degree. And the idea is he is holy as nothing else is holy. He is holy as we'll never attain, although we seek to do so, but never will a human obtain the holiness, the degree of holiness that God has obtained. But that's a good thing because that keeps our focal point exactly where it needs to be. 
and it's the holiness of God that is reflected towards mankind and that we see him in all of his majesty and all of his righteousness and all of his, well, just all of his holiness. So tonight, we've been looking, starting in Psalm 93, the theocratic psalms, the psalms that are examining God as he is seated upon the throne. And the attribute of our God who is upon the throne, his main attribute above all that are mentioned, is his holiness. There have been many rulers, good rulers, in our history. Washington, Lincoln, Winston Churchill, and we could just go down a list. There's some not so good, Stalin, Hitler, Saddam Hussein, and whoever the latest bad guy is. But there has never been any holy, let alone holy, holy, holy. In Exodus chapter 15, verse 11, who is like you, O Lord, amongst the gods? Now, amongst all the false gods is the idea here. Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praise, doing wonders? And so we have the holiness of God, but there's an issue in the holiness of God. It's not a bad issue, but there's just an issue in the holiness, not with the holiness of God, but in the holiness of God. Now, oxygen is a good thing. If we do away with oxygen, if we were able to do that, then we would, we would die. But if you got too much oxygen, too much oxygen isn't healthy either. And then God's holiness, we have God's holiness to the third degree. And the issue would be is man cannot come before the absolute purity of God. We're sinful man and the absolute purity of God is as a, a, a burning fire. And so it was necessary for Jesus Christ to come to enter in, that God, that God would enter in and do a work in our lives, that he would represent us, and that which is not holy within our lives would be dealt with so that we can boldly then enter into the presence of God. And so you have this God that's a burning fire. Scripture tells us nobody can talk to God face to face. But now we have this intercessor who is able to rightly represent us into the throne room of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 through 29 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. And again, it's that absolute purity of a holy God. The divisions of the stanzas in this psalm are each made known by the terms, He is holy the second, he is holy, and the third, the Lord our God is holy. And so we'll look at these three stanzas tonight as the worship of the king is based upon the righteousness illuminated by an awesome holiness. That's what the psalmist is seeing as he is seeing God who is seated upon the throne. Again, verse 3, let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. <clears throat> Verse 5, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, he is holy. Verse 9, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. And so each time mankind is driven for worship, and what is it that validates the worship of mankind towards God? Again, it's the holiness of God. It's the absolute purity of God. And so the Lord reigns. So God is seated upon the throne. No doubt about that. Because the Lord reigns, because he is seated upon the throne, let the peoples tremble. Tremble? Again, sinful man 
coming, at least into the realization of a holy God. It says he dwells between the cherubim. That's a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. You had those two cherubim whose wings were touching, and in the Jewish mind, that was God's throne. That's where God's glory rested as God's glory filled the temple or the tabernacle. We were reading about that as if you're reading through the one-year Bible. I believe it was actually yesterday. It was time to build the tabernacle. Why? Because God desired to dwell amongst his people. Didn't desire for his people to dwell with him at that point, but for him to come and dwell amongst his people. And so since they were traveling towards the promised land, although they had many years to go still, there was the necessity to build this dwelling place of God that would, if possible, contain the holiness of God. Now, it didn't contain the whole holiness of God. That's uncontainable. But just to the Jewish mind, they had that holy of holies, and there was the Ark of the Covenant that was in there, and that was the throne of God. And then the glory of the Lord would rise up, and it was time to move, but then it would stop, and then they would reassemble the tabernacle underneath it, and then the holiness of God would fill that tabernacle, and the Jew would know that God is with us. And you can look, there's the tabernacle, and you can see the lights coming from that. The, the glory is, is in the tabernacle. God is amongst men. The Lord is great in Zion. When you see Zion, it's speaking of the hills around Jerusalem, and it's alluding to Jerusalem. And he is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. Then it goes on to say in verse 4, the king's strength also loves justice. So the strength of God is towards justice for mankind, unholy mankind. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Now, when it says the Lord, our God, notice once again, it's all in caps. And it's a reference back to Exodus chapter 3. We've seen all of this before. And the idea is, this is Yahweh. This is the great I am. Who is our God? The great I am. He gave Moses that name because Moses was about to go into Egypt. And there was all of these gods in Egypt who had all of these names. But the biggest problem with them was they weren't. They were just false gods, figments of mankind's imagination. But here's a God who is different than all. This is truly the God who is. Moses and Aaron were amongst his priests, and Samuel amongst those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar, and they kept his testimonies and the ordinances he gave them. So they had a recognition of God and who he is, and they rightly represented the Lord, but also rightly represented the people to the Lord. You answered them, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives though you took vengeance on their deeds. And so there has to be that equal part of forgiveness and vengeance. Now, remember, we looked at this a while ago. This isn't revenge. Vengeance is absolute, when it comes from God, true and right justice. It's the, what needs to happen upon those who are guilty. Vengeance should have come upon our lives, but what did Christ do? He took that for us so that we would not have to pay the price for our sins. You answered them, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. And so because of all this, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. 
And so in the first stanzas, verses 1 through 3, we look at his holiness. We first need to see the relationship between the holiness of God and the holiness of mankind. Verse 2, it says, He is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. Let them praise this great and awesome name. Now, when we studied Exodus, and we're going to, I think when I'm done with the Psalms, we're going to go and we're going to look at Genesis again. We haven't uh, studied Genesis in 20 years, I think it is, probably 18 years when we finished it. And then after that, we went in to the book of Exodus. But one of the, 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 the best things, I mean, obviously, it's at the beginning of the Bible. But one of the most amazing things is, is that we're introduced to so much in Genesis and then in Exodus. In Genesis, we're introduced to the existence of God and the creation of God and God's people and the 12 tribes of Israel. But then we see how they ended up in Egypt in captivity. And then God delivered them from Egyptian captivity. And as they're going through the wilderness, what is God doing through that time? He is introducing himself to them. Now, again, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is asking God, who should I say is sending me? They're going to ask who, what, you know, there's all these gods. What's his name? Which one is this God? Well, again, this is a revelation. God is revealing himself to the world, to Egypt, as he did to Pharaoh, but also to his people, because what does God desire? God desires that personal relationship with his people. And so, they're going through, and there's trials, and there's failures, and there's victories. And then finally, one day, Moses says, I want to see you. Please, show me your glory. See, Moses thinks that he can come in to a, a greater understanding of who God is by seeing God. But the problem is, again, no man can see God and, and live. And the idea, you can tell Moses, Moses, even if you saw him, you wouldn't be able to comprehend, you wouldn't be able to understand because one of the things of God is he's so beyond us. He's beyond our comprehension. He's beyond our understanding. So God chose to reveal himself to us in a means by which we're able to understand Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And so Moses, though, not understanding, and in verse 18 of Exodus chapter 33, and he said, Moses said, please show me your glory. And he says, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And so that was that point that I made, the absolute holiness of God. Mankind cannot survive before that. Verse 21, and the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be why my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft, a cleft or a fold of the rock, and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. How are we able to experience the holiness of God? How are we able to see God? By standing on the rock, by being in the cleft of the rock. And the idea of the picture is being encompassed by the totality of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was that which protected man from the holiness of the Lord, this rock, and it's our rock today that protects us from the holiness of God. Verse 23, Then I will take away my hand, and you will see my back, but my face shall not be seen. 
kind of explained that before. It's as if you're looking at a meteorite and you have that hot molten rock, whatever a meteor is, but then you have that tail and you have the brightness of the meteorite, but then you have it, it, it starts dimming as it, as it starts expanding. And so what God is saying, you're just going to be able to see the trail portion of my glory. You're going to be able to see a small element of my glory. But see, what God is, is saying here is, is and this, this is huge, and again, this is how God has chosen to reveal himself. He, he, he's going to proclaim his name. And it's in the name of God that we understand who God is. The name, and that's why we have so many, in the Bibles, we have so many descriptions of people according to their name, because name denotes nature and essence of who somebody is. And so God is going to show him a bit of his glory. I'm going to let you see a portion of my glory, but that's not how you are going to know who I am. You're going to know who I am as I proclaim my name. And so chapter 34 is that which is happening. And so it says in verse 5 of chapter 34, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with them there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So as he is going by, he's proclaiming the name of the Lord. So we saw previously in that same event, he saw the glory of God, just the trail parts, a way that he's able to survive it. But now he is getting the actuality of who God is. And so verse 6 says, And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. He, he again said this so many times, but when I read it once before, or heard it once before, it just made so much sense to me. Mercy keeps us out of hell, and grace gets us into heaven. And we see God, part of his name, part of who he is, the nature and essence of God is that he is merciful and gracious. He's long-suffering. Again, long-suffering is only long-suffering if it takes a long time and there's suffering involved. Just think of how long God suffered with you. How old were you on the day that you were saved? How old were you? God was long-suffering with you throughout all of those years until you came into a right relationship with him. Abounding in goodness and truth. God is absolutely good. We'll look at this in a little bit. And he's absolutely truthful. There is no untruths in God. Verse 7, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but by no means, because God is just, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. The idea is, is that the sinfulness of mankind as it's left unabated will affect. It's not that God is punishing the children and the children's children. It's that there's going to be that lingering effect through to the generations. Verse 8, so Moses, now what was Moses's, so what is Moses being confronted with here? He's being confronted with the description in a way that he's able to comprehend of the holiness of God. And, and it's just overwhelming to him as he sees this. And so you see his reaction to that in verse 8. So Moses made haste, this means he did this right away, bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped God. When the holiness of God was revealed to Moses, Moses was before the Lord on his face worshiping. Then he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go amongst us, even though we, notice he doesn't say, because he had said this previously, Lord, they're a stiff-necked people. But now as he's standing before 
the holiness of God. He's understanding. Just as Isaiah did, if you read the first five chapters of Isaiah, he's pointing out the people and their sins, but not, woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Well, again, Moses says, O Lord, let... Oh, Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go amongst us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. So as Moses is now including himself as a sinful man, having this sinful nature, we, we, we understand that Moses, Moses got it. As God revealed himself to Moses, Moses got it. It was necessary for Moses to see God, but the only way he could see God was through the name of God, the, 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 the revelation and how God has chosen to reveal himself, and he has done so through this holiness. And matter of fact, in, in, in um, Psalm 139, we're told that God says, I will honor my word even above my name, because it's through his word that we understand who God is and we understand the holiness of God. And so we are commanded to be a people who are holy, but our holiness is a separation from that which is not holy, sin, and towards that which is holy, our God. So in this lifetime, I will never be holy, not comparable to God. And we can all have our standards of what holiness is, but as far as absolute holiness, I will never make that but it's a process that we all must continually work towards. Again, we call this holiness, or maybe we will call it sanctification, but the idea is I become more and more separated from the world and the things that are contrary to God. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, it says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourself to former lust, how you used to be, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all of your conduct. Jesus Christ was revealed to us. What, what are we working at? What are we working at? Through our Bible studies and obedience to the Bible studies, we're working at living a Christ-like life. What's a Christ-like life? It's a holy life. And so that's my desire it is to be holy. Lord, I want to be holy before you. I, I want to have that reduction of worldliness. I want to have that reduction of my flesh. I want to have that reduction of who I used to be. And Lord, daily, I want to continually enter into a new awareness of who you are, a, a, awareness of your word and the ability to apply your word to my life. And Lord, may it result in a continual growth and holiness in my life. The idea here is, is that we are to spend our time working to God's unobtainable majesty. Again, he alone is holy, holy, holy. And so usually when we speak of holiness applied to mankind, it's in the context of ethical concepts. Pastor Mike is holy because he lives a a morally pure and good and godly life. But you don't know Pastor Mike all that well. If you ask Mrs. Pastor Mike, 
She could tell you about some of the times when Pastor Mike maybe gets frustrated or doesn't always do what he wants to do. And, and so there's always going to be those flaws. But with God, holiness is transcendent. That means it rises above common thought or understanding. He's just simply beyond us. God is not holy because he is morally pure, but he is all he is simply because of his holiness that exists at the core of who he is. So then, to know holiness is to know the true nature of God. And so, what are the elements of God's holiness? First of all, just kind of a little side list here, it's the majesty of God it's, is an element of his holiness. This is his perceived holiness through his majesty. You would see a king and you would see him in his regalness. You would see the crown. You would see the robe. And you would see just, well, there would just be this, you would just be in awe of this royal crown, this king. And you would just be perceiving the totality of his majesty. Well, that is an element of God's holiness. It's what Isaiah tried to describe in Isaiah 6, 1 and 2. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe, his majesty, filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two his feet, and with two he flew. And so Isaiah saw the stateliness of God. He saw the grandeur of his God and the splendor of his God. Maybe a good description. The day that Terry and I were married, there was the majesty of Mike and Terry. It wasn't a lot because we couldn't afford a lot, but, you know, we were, we were dressed up nice. I, I can still remember as I was standing up in, at that altar when my wife came around the corner on her father's arm, dressed in that dress, and I just remember her beauty, and I just, you know, just remembered the day of holes, one of the greatest days of my life. Well, probably, I don't remember, there's a few years later, Prince Charles and Diana got married. Their wedding was a little bit more than ours. There, there was a little bit more grandeur there. And so we see these things and these splendor, whatever it might be. Well, as far as God, God is off the charts. It says, the Lord reigns, verse 1, let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. Again, in Isaiah chapter 6, this time in verse 4, and the post of the earth were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Again, there's this overwhelmingness based upon the majesty of God. The second element of God's holiness is his will. If God is holy, then his will will be holy as well. It's how his holiness and sovereignty are perceived. It's an outward expression. God's will is an outward expression of his inward holiness. In order to have a relationship with God, we must know his will, and his will is known through his word. And that being the case, his word is holy. It's holy, holy, holy. It is to be looked at that in that context when it is read and when it is studied. This must be a holy time or a time is set apart because we are opening up God's word that is going to direct us according to his will. Now, again, when I teach the word, sometimes I'll have people come back and say, you know, God spoke to me in this way or that way. And I'll be thinking, well, what God told me had nothing really to do with that. 
but it's God's word. It's living and it's powerful. And God reaches each and every person exactly where they are at in their life and exactly how God wants to direct them. This is God's holy word. He has chosen to convey it through unholy people to unholy people, but it's for our benefit. And so in order to have this relationship with God, God had to reveal himself and he's revealed his holiness through his word. Apart from his word, we do not know his will and cannot perceive his holiness. It's only because our holy God decided to give us his word that we are able to have this relationship with him. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, but you, Paul encouraging young Timothy, must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So again, all scripture is given by inspiration. It's inspired by God. The idea is it is breathed out. This holy word is breathed out from a holy God. And then the third element of God's holiness, and you have to include that, and that's part of what is being spoken of here. Uh, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim, let the earth be moved. Fourth element of God's holiness, I'm sorry, third element of God's holiness is his wrath. See, his wrath isn't just a, a, a triggered anger, but this is a holy wrath against that which is contrary to him. Wrath is a holy God's natural reaction to that which is not holy. Colossians chapter 3, verse 6 says, Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedient or those who are not holy. This is why a new heaven and new earth will be necessary because the first one has been defiled and there will be nothing that is defiled in God's eternity. And so to understand God's grace, once again, we have to realize the existence of his wrath. Now, how many times have you heard people say, my God would not send anybody to hell? You say, my God would not condemn anybody. My God would not exhibit wrath. But if God would not condemn anybody, if there was no such thing as the wrath of God, then there would be no such thing as the grace of God. The only reason the grace of God is known to man and even exists is because of the wrath of God. And, and, and so because God is going to judge sin and because he is going to condemn the sinners, because of Revelation chapter 20 and the great white throne judgment, we understand the magnitude of grace. Now, We've seen this before, but in Revelation chapter 5, in that great holy choir that is in heaven, John's up there and doesn't understand who is going to be able, who's worthy to take the title deed of the earth, and it seems as if nobody is, and it brings them to the point of tears. But then all of a sudden, this lamb comes forth as, as if it has been slain. We know that to be Jesus Christ because he prevailed upon the cross. And he takes the title deed of the earth, and because of this, because of the great expression of the grace of God, what happens? All heaven, angels, angels say that he's holy and they worship him. Mankind sings out, worshiping the Lord and his holiness because there's a fresh awareness. Because again, John's crying because it seems like all are condemned. There's nobody worthy, but now there is. And so there's this fresh awareness of the grace of God. 
And just as with Moses, when the name of God was proclaimed to him, and the first thing he did fell on his face and worshiped God, that's what we're seeing in heaven, this huge choir, which we can't even imagine until that time we're there. And then the fourth element of God's holiness is his righteousness. Righteousness can be defined as his absolute rightness. The idea, God's rightness, is the rightness that all that is right is measured by. You don't know what is right unless you know the standard of rightness. And God has set the standard. What's wrong with the society that has gone contrary to God? Everybody does what is right in their own sight. They do what is right based upon their standard of rightness. But we have God's standard of rightness, and God is absolute righteous. How do you know if you live in a godly society? Does it adhere to what is holy, what God has set apart as being right? And we see as our society has gone away from that which is right, we see the direction that we have taken. Proverbs 30, verse 12 There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. Second stanza, verses 4 through 5, we see the might of his holiness. The king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool, for he is holy to the psalmist. This is represented by the Ark of the Covenant. To us, it's the presence of God within our lives through the Holy Spirit. Again, that's why David was so excited when he was bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, that God was going to come once more and dwell amongst his people, and even so much more, God was going to dwell in the capital, the place in which Israel was governed. In 1 Chronicles 28.2, it says, Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brethren and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God, the resting place of our God. And so we have this mindset of the ark of the covenant. Remember, nobody was to touch the ark of the covenant. Why? Because it was holy. It was to be transported exactly how God had commanded it to be transported because this is the place that God was going to, if you will, again, figuratively, but there was a literal element to this as well, that he was going to be seated on that place. Well, in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 3, God had commanded to his people how he was to be worshipped. Then all of a sudden there's Nadab and Abihu. So there's this time that all of the, the temple is, or well, the tabernacle is put together, sacrifice is now being made, and there's a joyous time. And Nadab and Abihu, these sons of Aaron, they act forth in the flesh, and they offer what is described as offering strange fire before the Lord. What are they doing? They're worshiping a holy God in a manner in which the world worships their unholy gods. And it says, So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all people I must be glorified. And so Aaron held his peace. Aaron did not speak out against his sons. 
uh, and what had happened there. The might of our holy God is also seen in the ark and through the ark and how sin is, is dealt with. Remember, there was, well, in Numbers chapter 16, there were those who spoke out against God's anointed, against Moses. Numbers 16, verses 15 through 19, it says, One ordinance shall be one ordinance shall be for you, for the assembly, and for the stranger who dwells with you, an ordinance forever throughout your generations, as you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law and one custom shall be for you, and the stranger who dwells with you. I'll just leave it there, but the idea here is, is once again, God, God has given us his holy word, and that is that which he is going to judge mankind. It's the standard in which we have given so that we would know that we are right with God that we know that we are imperfect people, that we observe his holiness, and that we can work towards the holiness which is commanded of us. And then lastly, we have the third stanza, the reaction to his holiness, verses 6 through 9. Moses and Aaron were amongst his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies in the ordinance he gave them. You answered them, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. Exalt our Lord God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. Again, just three things in closing here. Again, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15, we are commanded to be holy or to reach up to God's unobtainable holiness. The work of holiness is not an option to those even during this age of grace in the body of Christ because we are to reflect God's holiness to this unholy world. Three men are mentioned here that did holy service to the Lord, Moses, Aaron, and Samuel. And although you can think that I'm not on the level with them, but if you look up at verse 4, it says, the king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity. Because of my relationship with Jesus Christ, God looks at me as if I've never sinned. God looks at me as I am I'm holy, not, not to the degree that he is, but again, separated from that which is of the world. Now think of that. God looks at me as somebody who has not sinned. He looks at me as somebody who's holy, who's separated, separated from, again, the world, but for what? For his work and for his service. And so what that tells me is, is to the degree that God used Moses, Aaron, and Samuel, and so many others, he's able to use me in my sphere of influence. He's able to use me in my home, that I would establish holiness within my home and see it flourish within my home that I would establish holiness in my sphere of influence, neighborhood, on the job, in the school, again, wherever it might be, and I would see holiness flourish because, well, just as Moses did amongst his people and Aaron and Samuel and, again, many others in the scriptures, that they would because of myself as well. Second thing, even as they needed to do so, we must also, look how verse 6 says, and they called upon his name called upon his name, called upon God based upon who he is. Verse 7, they spoke to him in the cloudy pillar and kept his testimonies 
and, uh, and the ordinance he gave them. They were obedient. We must call upon the Lord. We must be obedient to the Lord. And then verse 8, and realize his grace and forgiveness that comes to imperfect people and flee to that throne of grace. You answered them, O God. You were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. And then lastly, what is to be our reaction? Well, we saw the reaction. We saw the reaction with Isaiah. We saw the reaction with Moses, but just in way of reminder in this last verse, exalt the Lord our God above everything else in your life. Exalt the Lord your God above and beyond all, recognizing his holiness, recognizing who he is, understanding the magnitude of who God has been to you. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill for the Lord our God is holy. Recognize the holiness of God and recognize that this perfect holy God, he loves you. He cares for you to such a degree that he became man. He died upon that cross, but then, although he did die, he rose again from the dead and now is ascended. He sits in that place of authority. He's on that throne that we have been looking at for all of these weeks. One more lesson in Psalm 100, but he is seated upon the throne. And because he is of that place of glory, learn to worship at his feet. Express your heart during time set apart for worship. Worshiping him just as you meditate upon him and upon his word. You can do that as you're driving to work. You can do that as you're by yourself in your home. You can do that any opportunity that you have just recognizing him and who he is. And meditate upon the holiness of God, the absolute rightness of God. And, and, and that should drive you to that spirit of worshiping him as well. And again, this time as we've looked at his word, and now we're going to have this last song, this last time of worship. Sing out with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your might. And again, the recognition is, is the holiness of God, not the ability of a worship team or, or anything else. It's to recognize this God who has saved me, although I did not deserve to be saved. It's this God who keeps me, although I do not deserve to be keep, kept. And this God who will bring me unto himself, although I, I deserve to be cast off from him. And we serve this God who above and beyond all his chief attribute is, is that he is holy. Father, we just thank you, God, for revealing yourself to us. Your word you have said you will honor even above your name. And Lord, again, as we examine your word, we see the nature and the essence of, of who you are. Come to that greater understanding, but that understanding isn't just for head knowledge. It's for the motivation of our heart as we worship you. And so, Father, the way we digest your word, or at least the knowledge that we have digested your word into our heart should be an expression of praise and worship. And Father, I just pray, even on this last song, it's not just that which we do to end our service tonight, but a final opportunity to worship at the feet of our Lord. And so, Father, I pray that we would never waste an opportunity such as this. And so, Father, I just pray that we would pour our hearts out and worship here tonight. And so, once again, God, we just thank you and we just praise you for all that you've done and continue to do. And just pray, Father, for those who've come out tonight, that you would go before them, that you would watch over them and keep them. But I also pray, Father, that we would render the honor that is truly due to you, we pray in Jesus' name.
Amen. Will you all stand, please?